Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Jennifer, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it is really cool to have you here. You know, I actually was introduced to you by way of one of our listeners, Nikki Groom, who I know is um, somebody you work with. I know you're one of her clients. And when I had a chance to dig into your story and learn a little bit more about what you do and uh, look at the talk that you gave, I was very blown away by it and thought, yeah, this is kind of a no-brainer. So it is very, very cool to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait for this discussion. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I want to ask you... Uh, a question that I've asked a handful of people, and that is, what is the most important thing that you learned from either your mother or your father that has had an impact on your life and your work? Oh, my goodness. What a rich and juicy question. Oh, boy. I think I learned from my mom. Uh, I remember I have memories of her as an activist. It wasn't the way she made her living, but it was what she dedicated herself to as a stay-at-home mom. And I remember a series of causes that she supported and Obviously, that made a big impression on me, um, and also just her her charitable impulse. You know, her impulse to give back, her impulse to do more than is expected. Um, at one point, she was leading all three of our Girl Scout troops. I have two sisters, and um, you know, organizing them very efficiently and coming up with creative programming for them, and just just going the extra mile. You know, really, really thinking about what would be good for us in our development. And, and, you know, she had so much privilege to be able to do that, of course, because she was a stay-at-home parent. But, but I think I learned a lot. I think that awakened my awareness of how much need to be, needs to be done and how we need to play a role in that, and we feel responsible to do that. And I've actually carried that. I'm not sure whether I was born with that, but I absolutely have carried it, um, obviously, into my work today. So walk me through the sort of trajectory from, you know, growing up with a mother who kind of instilled these sort of values in you to, you know, what you've ended up doing with your life and your work. Yeah, I've been trying to unpack that for a long time. Um, (laughs) Well, I was the oldest daughter of three, um, you know, high achiever, overachiever, type A, people pleaser. Um, And and as I went through my teenage years, um, I ended up in. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Boarding school, believe it or not, which is actually a gift because I wasn't doing very well in the the public school world of the 80s, which if you want to know what that was like, all you need to do is just watch a John Hughes movie. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was insane. So I ended up being in boarding school, which was I, I just saved my butt, literally. Um, and I could be sort of the, the geeky, nerdy kid that I wanted to be in that environment and be really serious about my studies and academics. Um, and then I, I went east for college and um, kind of had a, I guess my women's studies class was a huge awakening for me. It was probably my biggest, you know, people talk about coming out processes and I would, I would subsequently come out when I was 22 um, as a member of the LGBTQ community. But, but even before that, I think my, my um, biggest awakening on aha moment was studying feminism and the, and the history there and reading that there was another and alternate way of being in the world as a woman that I, I wasn't aware about that as many of us are not. I just didn't, I didn't, I hadn't been exposed to it. And yet I'd had a really strong role model in my mother. And, um, and I, something in me felt strong enough to pursue that and explore it and internalize it and, um, really embrace it. And that political awakening was actually the, the very first and probably the most powerful one. And then, you know, subsequently, uh, you know, having a relationship with a woman when I was 22. And then, and then, you know, in the last, the next 20 years or so, sort of professionally trying to figure out who, who am I, how much of myself and my truth can I bring into what I'm doing, you know, as a function of making a living. And that was, um, that has been a long and winding road, as it is for so many of us. You know, for a while, I was I was in nonprofits in my early 20s, which felt very comfortable being uh, being who I am in all ways. But then I was also um, grooming myself and training to be an opera singer. So I ended up coming to New York in my later 20s and going to conservatory and, and getting my equity card and performing off Broadway. And I was very cognizant of being put into sort of these gender norms, these really strict traditional gender norms that live in the performing world, um, ironically, because I think there's obviously a lot of lot of LGBTQ people in that world. But what we put on stage is a very normative, at least back then, a very normative picture um, of who we are. And the, the irony of playing that every day was very, it was very, uh, I was very top of mind for me. I thought, you know, can I can I thrive in a profession that asks me to do, to play things consistently that are a total reduction of what I know to be true from a sexual orientation, gender identity and expression perspective. And just as a woman, you know, the roles for women, you know, how, 
how sort of un- unenlightened and unimaginative are so many of those roles. Um, you know, some of them in the opera world are literally hundreds of years old. So I just had this like cognitive dissonance around that. And then what happened is, and if anybody wants to watch my TED, I gave a TED in 2010 on the Presidio stage in San Francisco. Um, what happened in my training, my vocal training is that I ended up having to have vocal surgery because I, I, I don't know, I overtrained or I'm, you know, vulnerable. My instrument is vulnerable to injury. And I was literally, like my voice was literally taken from me for a period of weeks. And this happened several times. I had several rounds of surgery. And when you, when you recover from that, you have to regain your voice very gently and carefully. And what comes out when you are, you know, after weeks of silence, you know, you, all you have in terms of a sound is a tiny squeak. And then you gradually gain it back and you're, um, you coax it, you train it, you, um, you know, it, 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 it sort of regains its original register, but it's, it's, in my case, it would never really be something I could count on. So, you know, I had to reinvent and what I reinvented into was again, a huge gift from the heavens, I think, because it's now my, still my home professionally, which is the work of organizational development and, um, leadership. I kind of found my way to it as a corporate trainer. I was on platform all day teaching management skills and presentation skills and which I really liked as a performer. It really resonated with me to, to help business people find their voice and be more comfortable in front of rooms for obvious reasons. Um, but then, you know, then my, my LGBTQ identity kind of reemerged, um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And I started to kind of shape my professional gifts around not just to what I know how to do for organizations, but who I am. And I started to integrate those two things and bring that piece of who I am personally into my work. Um, and it added to my credibility. It added to my passion. Obviously it was, it has enabled me to really, really work on my healing, frankly, of having these parts of me that I never, that were sort of fragmented and disconnected from each other. And the process of, and the work, frankly, and the courage that it took to bring all those things together and be unapologetic about them, which is what I can do now, you know, in my forties has, I think really fueled our company and fueled my voice literally and figuratively and metaphorically and, you know, anything you want to say about it. And and now, you know, I get to use my voice on behalf of others and, you know, and, and, and let them borrow it, you know, until they can find their own. And um, so, in, you know, P.S., I think the, the moral of the, there are many morals of the story, but I think, you know, the gift of adversity is one thing that I think, you know, what I went through while heartbreaking was the chance to rebirth and um, transform and into unexpected places. And that was actually a gift in disguise. Um, and also the, the, the tremendous things that I learned in the becoming, you know, the resilience I learned, um, having to come out over and over and over again and feel the fear of being somehow marginalized or, uh, know that you are carrying a stigmatized identity. And in my case, choosing whether you share that or not and, and when, and what, and calculating those risks, I think, you know, far from making you feel, might make you feel intimidated in the moment and not great about yourself, but actually the, the process of defining and clarifying your truth and then, you know, being forced to lead with that, especially because I'm so out in my role now, um, it has is, it is really added to my many abilities as a leader. So I, I look at these things and I, when I work with audiences that are diverse, I often share the story because it's so important to kind of flip the narrative about how we, how we, how we learned and become who we are and actually where our sources of strength are and the gifts of adversity that we carry that we may not see in that way, but actually we should, we should be celebrating it. You know, it's, it's a gift. It can change the direction of your life. It has for me. And, um, now it enables me to do something that feels, you know, truly, truly spiritually gratifying. So many questions. Uh, the first being, you know, uh, about coming out, uh, and there's two questions I have about this one, you know, you didn't come out in high school. So I'm curious what your emotional experience of high school was like, and I'm curious what it's like to tell a parent something like that, because I, you know, I don't know that I'll ever understand it at the level that you do because I haven't Mm -hmm. experienced something like that. So I'm curious, you know, what are those two moments in your life? Like, yeah, I think in the high school, me was very from, from outward appearances, very conforming. Uh-huh. Um, actually kind of, kind of extremely so like, 
you know, all the stereotypes of, of the girl in Southern California and, you know, uh, upper middle class background and uh, totally clueless um, <laughs> from what I can tell looking at the pictures. But I think I actually was asking those questions and I was open to so much more even at that age, but I had no context um, and I had no role models um, and we had no internet. I mean, if you think about that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we had nothing to see. Um, I mean, these were the days when like I thought I died and went to heaven when, you know, I moved to Boston when I was 22 and they had like one gay bookstore, you know, and I would, I would go and stand outside and be afraid to walk in. And that was the life for many of us trying to find our community. I mean, not even knowing who we could talk to. Um, and I know that that's still, unfortunately, sadly, the reality for so many still today, but back then it was, it was a real challenge. So I think, you know, it's not like I, not like I knew, I didn't know how my life would unfold, but I knew even in high school that I was, I was capable of thinking about things in a broader way and defining myself in a broader way. I just, I couldn't find, um, a channel to experiment with that, um, at the, at that age and in that world that I was in. And then it didn't help to go to the small liberal arts college for, uh, for college in, in Vermont and, um, not have a, a lot or anything besides white people everywhere, <laughs> white and straight people everywhere. Um, so, you know, that was, I think, the my my sort of rarefied world continued to um, keep me from seeing what else was possible. But I definitely had a hunger to understand what was what was sort of in my future. Um, and then coming out to parents, obviously, I did that when I was 22, 23. And, um, you know, very difficult conversations. You know, parents are people, too. One takes it OK. The other doesn't take it well. I had one that didn't take it well um, and, you know, said, I, I just want you to be happy and I fear you're going to be a sad, a sad and lonely person for the rest of your life. I fear you're not going to uh, be successful professionally. I fear you're not going to know the love of a family. Uh, it was just this, like, it's all that they knew in that generation. And many people, I think, still carry that. And it's, it's sad to kind of burden a child with all of those things that the child I'm not sure really knows and, and doesn't believe really. Uh, but, but that was what was laid down for me. And I don't honestly know how I had the strength to withstand a conversation like that from somebody that I loved. Um, it still hurts to think about it, but somehow you kind of double down. And in those moments, you, that's when you draw on strength that comes from somewhere. And I'm not sure where it comes from. <laughs> to, you know, live your truth, to be authentic to who you are, to find your community of safety. Maybe it's your chosen community and not your given family. Um, it forces you to start to think about, you know, how important am I to this equation? Am I going to live somebody else's life or am I going to live my life? And, you know, those are all the fun things that you get to sort out in your 20s. <laughs> um, um, but I, when I moved to Boston, I sought that community and I found that community and I felt seen and heard. And, I, and even though I didn't really fit in that community either, believe it or not, and you can ask me a question about that if you want, mm -hmm. I, I still, at least I had a home base that made sense to me. And, and I'm very political as well. Like everything I do is so, um, boy, to me, the personal is political. Uh, and that's like an old feminist phrase, but it's so true. And I also felt I found a community and a movement that I very much um, aligned with. Um, and that, that's kind of, in a, in a crazy way, that's like the deepest connection I feel to that community and that part of my identity is kind of the change that we want to create in the world for equality. So what's been the impact um, over the course of your life uh, now that you're you know, into your 40s um, on your relationship with your parents, your siblings, and your friends uh, of coming out? Yeah, well, it's, I'm, in, I'm in a family where we have different political views and different religious beliefs. And um, there's a lot of um, potential disconnect and, and maybe tension that can happen. And this election, certainly, I, I'm one of those people that have, has been reading voraciously, looking for tips online to say, how do I have these conversations? And how do I, <coughs> I feel like I'm going back to being 22 again in many ways. This past couple of weeks has like thrown a lot of us into this really vulnerable place. And and it's like, you look at it and you say, I should be past this. You know, I should be, I'm secure. I'm successful. You know, I've created all these things. Like I, you know, if you're really not vulnerable, like, like some of us are not, and some of us are, by the way, of course. So, you know, relatively speaking, I'm not vulnerable as much as others are at this moment. 
However, it, it, it dragged me under and it took me back to the fear. Um, and it took me back to the, um, isolation that I felt as a younger person of fear of not being accepted, fear of not being loved. Um, very, my family was very top of mind. And, um, so that was, I think shared in common again, sort of seeking that community of people who are experiencing the same thing was, was hugely helpful to be, feel that you were not alone in experiencing and asking these questions and feeling this pain. Um, now I, I think, I think in every family you sort of choose how vocal do you want to be, um, about the work you do and about who you are. And, uh, I think some families, you know, have knocked down, drag out, painful discussions and can kind of bounce back. Other families stay away from the third rail and decide to keep the peace. We're not going to discuss it. Uh, my culture being waspy culture, we tend to do the latter. Um, so we bury it. And uh, so I guess my short answer is I'm, I, I share in dribs and drabs and I'm always very conscious of how much people can take in of me and what I'm about. Um, and I find certain outlets where I can be more of an activist and, and really let my anger show. Um, like my Twitter voice is very, is, is very unique and kind of different than my Facebook voice, which is different than my voice in my family, which is different than my voice with my corporate clients. So um, I, I'm always cognizant of, of those different um, channels that I can bring all the parts of me and what I'm feeling in an appropriate way and really in a constructive way. What I always want to do is be loving with, uh, as a change agent, not be leading from fear, not be angry, not be causing resistance because resistance doesn't help me and doesn't help people that I love and care about. So, um, so these days I, I'm just very, I'm sensitive to that, but I'm also sensitive about like incrementalizing, uh, what people see about me. Um, that makes me uncomfortable too. Um, but, you know, I kind of can't help that. I'm a, you know, if you specialize in organizational change, you mm -hmm. think a lot about how does change occur? How do you bring people along? How do you work with them as they come to participate with you? What does that journey look like for them? And um, ultimately, with the end goal in mind, which is that you, you want to increase understanding and you want to increase support. And if that's your end goal, then you have to play your cards in a really strategic way in order to generate that. And... I think, you know, I have a lot of cards to play and I'm very mindful about what I play and when. And I'm also also mindful that you cannot re you cannot require or scare people into coming along with you when it comes to things like this. So you said I could ask you a question about um, finding a community, <laughs> but not still feeling like you fit in somewhere. And I'm curious, yeah. you know, why you mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I knew you wouldn't let that go. Um, so this has to do with my gender identity and expression. Um, I didn't feel when I came out and I was trying to find community, it's funny, I, I was sort of invisible in my own community and I didn't have the language and the name for why that necessarily was. And I think it was at the time, this was you know 20 years ago, um, people were, they recognized each other in a community based on certain hallmarks, you know, signals. It's how you dress. It's how you wear your hair. It's how you speak. Um, it's what, maybe what you do for a living. Um, and I felt very much kind of a fish out of water in, in that, in the LGBTQ community back then. And it's, you know, I, I have tried to experiment with a gender expression that would fit more of the, um, the, what I thought was the expectation around what does a woman in this community look like and dress like. And it never quite fit for me to put on maybe more of a masculine-centered garb. Um, but as a result, I was not really seen. And um, it, it just was interesting. I, I, I was aware of being outside of even that community, which is my chosen community at the time. So, again, it, it just introduces – now we know that gender expression is a continuum, you know, now we understand and have the language for gender identity as a continuum and sexual orientation as a continuum. Um, but back then, it was this binary, if you're if this, then that. It was very masculine, feminine. It was extremes on both ends. And um, and it was just, it was it, thinking back, I now understand. And I, again, I'm going to say that it was a gift because I, you know, people say it's, it's edge dwelling, right? It's some of us who are just kind of destined to live at the edge. And 
you know, whichever group we, we are raised in or our, whichever community we're trying to fit into, we don't. Um, you know, so we kind of touch a lot of these pieces, but we never quite feel that it's a safe harbor that we can kind of set up shop in for a long time. And, and there's a real beauty in that, too, uh, in terms of having to define something outside of a norm. You know, my partner and I aren't married right now, and we get a lot of questions about that norm and a lot of questions about the norm of children, you know, and continuing to make choices um, that we do that feel authentic for us that don't conform to expectations for us. And believe me, I have a lot of straight friends who are like, we fought for your right to get married and you're not getting married and how <laughs> dare you? And I'm like, wait a second, fighting for the right is, is that does not mean that, you know, I have to conform to, you know, maybe an institution that doesn't resonate with me. So I don't know. I, I think it's a real gift to stand outside and, and, and as, and, and as a consultant, of course, you stand out that you're paid to stand outside. I mean, that's what you do. You are that third party neutral outside looking in diagnosing, um, you know, assisting, influencing change, not as inside the system, but actually outside the system. And it's, I love having that position as I walk into conversations to influence change because I try, it's freeing and it's independent and it's respected in a certain way. Um, and I just think it's interesting how it kind of carries over into my personal life. Um, and, you know, and P.S., I, I'm very aware that I can pass. So in the in the gay community, we talk about passing. It's an old term, actually. Um, it's around passing as straight originally. But for me, it's, uh, gee, you can Google me. You can watch my talks. You can, you know, listen to this interview and know who I am. But a lot of rooms I walk into with executives, for example, I have to decide, you know, what is in service of this dialogue right now in terms of what change I want to see or what, what I need to do on behalf of a client. And, and it's just, it's interesting to, to still be making that choice around, do I divulge? Do I personalize? Do I have a vulnerable moment? Is it in service of the teaching that I'm here to do? What will they do with that information? Will it legitimize me or will it harm me? You know, am I, am I safe and am I not, or am I not? And I can tell you, I still have those moments very frequently. Um, even though I'm there allegedly to talk about this exact topic, I think even those of us who do this work still struggle to bring that part of who we are into the conversation because we are worried it's going to take away, it, it somehow take away our credibility, which is really ironic given the topic of what we're talking about, but it's still a fact. So the period as uh, an opera singer, what did that teach you about uh, creativity and commitment and craft? Mm. Oh, boy. Uh, well, training as an opera singer, you have to be a master of all languages. You've got to, the show has to go on. You've got to get on stage and be fearless uh, multiple times a day. Um, just the sheer discipline and the habit of being uncomfortable. We often say, you know, being comfortable with uncomfortable is the whole concept around diversity and inclusion. Mm. Learning, you know, is that comfort with discomfort. And it's honestly, it's one of the most uncomfortable uh, professions. <laughs> it, you know, I, I think it's, it's, you're on the high wire every single day and you have to improvise. You have to make it work. It, you've got to connect quickly with people. You have to resonate with people. You've got to be emotionally intelligent enough that you are convincing quickly. You want people to know more about you quickly. So all of these things are things, tools I sharpened in those, in those halls that I think are, are huge benefits to me in the work that I do now. I have to walk into a room. I have to win people over quickly. I have to get them to listen to me. I have to make them comfortable. I need to inspire them quickly. Um, in order that they will listen to me. Um, a lot of these things are what stage performers do all the time. So it, it absolutely prepared me for, you know, getting up and giving a keynote in front of 900 people. Um, I, you know, I never dreamed I would be, I would be doing that. I think singing in a way is actually on the flip side, it's actually a safer thing to do <laughs> emotionally than what I do now, honestly, which is, you know, when I choose to, you know, share the kinds of things I'm talking about today, um, which is way more raw and way more risky. And so, and I feel like maybe singing was not enough. Like I, I think I wanted more and this is absolutely providing me with the challenge of my life is what I talk about now. 
You know, the other part that, that caught my attention in the beginning, uh, in you know, so the, sort of the first part of your story was this idea of losing your voice and spending all that time in silence. And my first thought mm. was, what was going through your mind during that entire time? <laughs> and what, what is your communication with people like during that? Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Kind of a period, because that sounds like hell to me. As a person who spends literally my time talking to other people, that just sounds like torture. Yeah, it was a dark time. Um, and remember, it was before it was before, mostly before internet, um, or maybe very rudimentary. But I mean, this was a long time ago. It was like maybe eighteen, fifteen years ago. So um, you know, I would tap one yet for one for yes and two for no into the phone when I was talking to my mom, who was three thousand miles away, uh, checking in on me. Um, I don't remember very clearly, but I was terrified. I think I just was feeling that my dreams were being taken away from me and uh, that I had somehow caused it. So the interesting, I think, psychological thing we do to ourselves when these kinds of things happen is how did I cause this? You know, was I irresponsible? Um, and you and you internalize all these negative messages about yourself as a professional and um you know, all of those things I know are not true about myself intellectually, but I, I really took it out on myself. I think emotionally that, that somehow I caused it. And it's so funny to just look at it in a totally different way, in a very spiritual way to say, you know, the universe needed this to happen as a wake up call, probably for me to slow down and be quiet and listen. And and, and listen in a different way, and, and it had to sort of break me in order to get me to listen, and it had to take away something that was so, I thought, was my sort of main mechanism, 
to, to, to deliver my gifts. And maybe I needed to learn in that very severe way. And, and we often do. I mean, honestly, probably every single person has a story like this where you were just brought to your knees and you have to slow down. And, and if I had known then, if I had the spiritual practice then that I have now, there's always learnings and messages in these things. And now I understand what that was because I needed to rebirth. I needed to have it taken away from me. I needed to value it. I needed to reinvent. Um, I needed it in a bigger way. Um, and I think it cleared the way for that. So at the time, I had this kind of limited understanding and a very, I think, obviously negative take on what was happening to me. Um, but, but now it has a whole different significance looking at it from the lens of, you know, 15 years later. Okay, so two questions. Um, one is uh, about the spiritual practice. What is it? And you, know, you mentioned <laughs> that it has a whole different significance looking at through the lens of 15 years later. And I'm thinking about this in terms of things that really upset me and kind of just sent me into a, a tailspin, like things like breakups, things, just things that kind of, you know, you kind of look back at it and you're like, why did it have the effect that it did? Mm-hmm. Do you think it's possible to not let it have that kind of an impact in the moment? <laughs> or is it only something that you can look back in retrospect and say, okay, now 15 years later, I recognize all the gifts that come from it? <laughs> I know. Can we just skip the pain yeah, part? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, uh, you know, having gone through my reaction to the election, I I had to go through pain. I mean, it was painful. It was it was tears and tears and uh, fear and uh, but the, at the same time, the need to express and be true to myself and make sure that I was standing up and being seen for who I am. I, I said, boy, this is an opportunity, and whoever's not seeing me right now, they need to, and that was terrifying. You know, so it was just, it was one of those things. And I think as I moved through it, did I wish it weren't happening? Yes. Um, Was it uncomfortable? Uh, But was it good to feel so raw about something and so like incapable of, you know, getting out of bed and just being with that makes you feel uh, it's alive, you know, it's painful, it's, it's raw and it's real. And it's such a gift to have your body and your heart and your mind kind of, again, slow you down and make you pay attention to something. I mean, if we listen to how we respond to these things, there are so many, there's so much wisdom in it. So, you know, at the time that it's happening to us, if we can step outside of that and, and somehow and say, you know, I wonder, just be curious, not judgmental about it, but why is this happening? And what does it say about me? And is there beauty in my reaction? You know, is there the ability to feel and to feel pain and to um, kind of live with that and tolerate it is, is um, I think many, many of us numb ourselves to it. You know, many of us have these coping mechanisms where we, we stuff it down, we overeat, we medicate, we, I don't know. I mean, there's so many um, harmful coping mechanisms that people have developed. And the ability to just sit with something and not medicate and be present to it, I think that's the spiritual work. And it's easier said than done. But, but I think there's so much data coming at us at that moment in time. And if we, obviously, if we numb, we, we stop listening to the information. There's information. My friends, you know, in that spiritual um, community talk, talk about it like a download. They say, I'm getting a download. <laughs> and I love that concept of just imagining that. This, these are the moments when you, your soul sort of opens up. And you can hear things that you haven't heard before. You can receive things differently. We're not always in that mode. You know, we're in go mode. We're in to do mode. We have our lists. We're in productive mode. We're in, we're sort of keeping things at bay. And so I think these moments in our life, especially as we get older, the ability to feel and be honest about that feeling and, you know, scream and shout and cry. And, you know, those are, those are transformative moments. And I, I, as painful as they are, I'm really grateful for them. Um, and you just have to find a community of people that can hear it and listen to it and hold the space for it. You don't need people that can fix it. You don't, you know, I don't think anyone has the answers anyway, besides yourself. You just have to be present to it. And I think you do need support, but you don't need answers at that moment. 
Well, I actually think that makes a, a perfect setup to talk about what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about, which is this idea of being able to be your full self in you know your career, your life, and your work. Uh, I remember that was the first thing that caught my attention when I started reading the first chapter of the book, or even in the book jacket. I was like, showing up as your fullest self to work. I'm like, that's a recipe for somebody like me to get fired. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, and the thing is, the reason I say that is because that's actually been my my experience. Like, as a person who's been fired from every job I've been at, I'm kind of like, mm. me being my full self at work is worse than me not going to work at all. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I, I am very curious kind of, you know, where that came from, why it's important today, and what is the impact of that on our work and our lives, which I realize yeah. are like three questions in one. No, that's okay. It's my, one of my favorite subjects. Um, well, uh, well, I think our organizations, by the way, that would reject somebody like you really have a lot of work to do. I'm thinking about how they, how they um, provide fertile ground for somebody like you to come and want to stay, you know, and, and be able to give your contributions. So, you know, again, I kind of fault the institution and the leaders in those institutions and, and the fact that we're still laboring under uh, structures that are not, are not created I, I often say not created for us and, and by us. And when I say us, in that sense, I'm usually talking about maybe being a woman in a male-dominated business world or a person of color in a largely white organization or having entirely white and male leadership, you know, as you look up the, up the org chart. Um, so there really is a real disconnect going on. And many of us spin out. We just can't handle it anymore. We just have to leave. And it's just a matter of mental health and emotional health. When I, when I hear it told... You know, even if they don't get fired, um, they might be hiding a lot of themselves, but then they'll have one foot out the door and they'll be gone. And this is the reason that actually we don't see a lot more diversity moving up the organizational pipeline, the hierarchy to get into those leadership roles. It's because people can't take it anymore. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, I call it a death by a thousand cuts. It's, you know, some people walk through their work day at feeling you know, not only can they, they bring their sort of inconvenient parts of themselves, but that they're hearing things all day long micro inequities or, or otherwise that, that are discouraging, that indicate that people aren't really curious about their experience, that aren't, you know, aren't really evaluating their own behavior and, and, and seeing it through diversity and inclusion lens. You know, there's just a total lack of awareness or there's active resistance to it um, in a lot of organizational leadership. So that's the reason that all of us are, you know, not all, but a lot of us are spinning out to become entre entrepreneurs because at least then we can control how we spend our days and we feel that we have some direction over our, our destiny. And to me, that felt like life or death when I got fired from a corporate job. Um, that was my opportunity to say, you know, what role do I really want to play as somebody that is passionate for change? And I ended up kind of shaping a life as an entrepreneur where I could be that outside voice, that I could have that independence in order to listen, you know, and be, try to be kind of a truth teller, um, which is the role that I get to do now. But, um, but this is still rampant. It's a huge problem in organizations. And I know, I know it is because I know all the people, I know a lot of diverse talent. I do focus groups with people. I, I'm very connected in, and there's, um, there's real problems of, uh, people feeling afraid to even just bring their, forget the sort of inconvenient parts of themselves. It's just their, their ethnicity and their, their gender or their sexual orientation or their disability or their socioeconomic background. You know, there, there are norms in organizations that are very strong and strongly felt, whether you say them or not. There are unspoken rules about who gets promoted and how you have to come across and what does a leader look like in our company. And it's discouraging for younger people or people earlier in their career or people mid-career even who look and see nobody that looks like them and kind of extrapolate that to mean that, that nobody will have my back, nobody will be supporting me, nobody will be sort of helping me up. Um, and that, that's one of those thousand cuts that contributes to somebody saying, kind of putting those pieces together and saying, I, why am I doing this? You know, why am I fighting so hard? And I cry every time I meet a successful woman who says, oh, I just, you know, it's just tough. I was in finance or I was on the trading floor. I just, you know, I couldn't take it anymore. I just want to spend more time with my family. You know, I want to be like, no, <laughs> don't leave. We need you to stay. You know, we need your female partners to stay at law firms. We need 
people to stay because we, but, but, but staying requires a level of bravery and courage and resilience that I think is really unfair to ask, you know, (laughs) many people to shoulder. It takes a very certain kind of person to be that first one that like breaks through the glass ceiling and gets all the, gets all the scars that come along with that. And we, you know, the frontiers women and the people who have done this, um, I just am in awe of, of what they have had to endure. Um, and they've cleared the way, but I think we still have not really addressed the systematic problems um, with diversity. And therefore, we're going to continue to lose people um, until we figure that out. You know, it's interesting to me that we're at the end of 2016 and we're having this conversation. Mm-hmm, you know, I know. This seems like, wait a minute, didn't the civil rights movement end in the 1950s? <laughs> uh, you know, the other thing that you said that caught my attention was that you said that people feel like nobody has their back. And, you know, I mean, I'm probably like the most extreme outlier, but I have an inherent distrust of anybody who tells me they're offering me a job and that it's mm-hmm. secure because mm-hmm. my entire life experience has proven to be everything yeah. the exact opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I'm curious about that. And then also, um, you know, millennials. I know you, you touched a bit on, in the book on millennials, and I'm curious kind of, I mean, what is the impact of this on the future of work? Like, what are our future workplaces going to look like? Or more importantly, what are they going to need to look like in order to make sure that people thrive? Oh, my God. I love that question. Yes, that is the question. Because millennials, so they're a huge generation. They have uh, more of a voice than say I'm in Gen X, right? We mm-hmm. were, we were in many ways, the sort of sandwich generation, the forgotten generation. We were small, we were, um, alienated and dis and disenfranchised. I'd say we grew up in some pretty tough times. And so we had some tough messages and, you know, we, we were not empowered, I think by our parents, um, in the same way that millennials were. So they're coming into organizations. They feel, they feel certain about, what's right and wrong. And thank goodness, what they consider to be right is inclusiveness. One of the, one of the things that they really have grown up celebrating and being celebrated for. And so when they come into organizations and they look around, they're, they're, they notice right away that something is off. Um, and they are amazed that organizations have to have diversity training. They're amazed that nobody is talking about it or fixing it. Um, and they, I don't, I hope that I don't, they're not so far, they're not kind of minimizing their voice quite yet. They're actually sort of pushing forward and saying, um, I want, in order to thrive, here's what I need. And I think smart organizations are listening to that and reevaluating everything, you know, so many core processes, how people work, when they work, um, where they work, you know, when do they do their best work? What time of day? How do they want a team? You know, do they want a job description or do they want to be fluid? You know, how much variety do they need? How many, how much exposure do they need to uh, senior people, for example, versus sort of respecting the hierarchy and knowing your place? So all these things are being revisited. And I think um, they are an empowered generation more than we've ever seen to ask those questions and to actually be listened to. So that's that's really encouraging. And I often say the questions they're asking are questions that and, and needs that we all had as well. But we did not have the voice and the confidence and the limelight to ask those questions. You know, but these are all human things that we wanted and need in order to thrive. I don't care what your generation is. So you know, they're actually this, a beautiful thing versus something that should be resisted or name called as they are often. You know, I, I don't, I don't really think that's productive to use. You know, the word entitled, etc. Um, I think there we need to be listening about what's broken mm-hmm. with the workplace and really heeding that. And actually, we need to respond quickly because they're not going to be around very long anyway. And so, you know, like you said, it's like, what would, who would have your back? Well, why does it matter if I'm only going to be at the company two years? Yeah. And that's a, that's a very valid point. I think companies are in trouble because if somebody's looking at it and they're not, you don't capture their imagination and they, by the way, they're also not bringing their full self to work because maybe they were out and then they started the job and they went back in the closet. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much this is happening. So you're asking, people are receiving signals about what's okay and and how they should present themselves um, once they start in a large organization. And they're picking those signals up from what they hear leadership talking about. Um, I have, you know, friends of color, for example, say a young woman will look at how women of color are wearing their hair, you know, that are at the executive level and say, okay, so 
clearly, you know, I have to wear my hair that way. I can't wear it natural, for example, um, because that's what an executive looks like. That's, that's the only way that this company can accept somebody that looks like me is in that form. And so you have people who are kind of extrapolating from all this. And by the way, don't even get me started about what companies have said and not said in response to things like the Pulse nightclub shooting, things like the violence and the police shootings that we've had um, in the country, things like even the election. Um, Millennials are looking to understand who their leadership is. If they're going to work for a company, they need to know who are you. Not just, oh, we're the greatest this and we're the greatest that and, you know, the best talking points that any corporate communications can put together. But, you know, what is diversity and inclusion important to you? And, you know, and, and, and if you let the election come and go and all that was said in the context of that, and you didn't use that opportunity to, to underscore each of you is important to us as an organization, each of your voices. It's important to us that you bring your full self to work. You feel safe here because we know that you will contribute. If we enable that, you will give your best contribution. You'll give your extra effort. You know, we, we all need that. You know, I think it's, it's just been interesting to see who, which leaders have spoken up and which most have remained silent about everything that's been going on outside of the four walls um, of the company. And I think we don't have that luxury anymore. You know, we work is where we spend most of our time. And it's where I think so much learning happens. It's often where people are exposed to difference in a way that they're not in their personal lives. Um, We've got to work on global teams. We've got to work with multiple nationalities. We have to figure out how to lead uh, virtually without ever sitting in front of somebody physically. So, we have to get really good at, at noticing and valuing diversity in all of its forms and then being inclusive leaders. Um, and that I think we're a long way off from that. So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I am trying to help corporate America specifically try to um, tell their story differently and prioritize diversity and inclusion as a value that's going to resonate with incoming talent. But I want them to walk the talk. I don't just want them to use it as a marketing slogan. I want them to do the hard work, which is the internal work in their culture. Um, it's very easy to buy your way onto lists and get awards and you know control the optics of the story on the outside. But I think the harder work and the more valuable work is like, what are we going to be about internally as a culture? And I think the the role of leaders in in setting that framework is really important. They sort of have a huge platform they can use. And yet I find most either are scared of it, don't know what to say about it. They're, maybe their lawyers are telling them that they can't say anything about it. <laughs> um, Been there. And they, they just let it, yeah, they just let it go. And, it, and it's a missed opportunity because you know how people are hearing that. They're hearing that I don't matter. That is what they're hearing. Because something is happening in their life that's huge and yet they're expected to come into work and deny it. And that's kind of the core of what we need to solve for. Wow. You know, it's interesting as I was hearing you say that, and it's possible that you've perhaps read it. Um, I remember this very distinctly on Medium because it was probably one of the most shared things. It was an open letter to the CEO of Yelp from a millennial employee. Mm, I didn't see that. I'll have to look that up. It was, I mean, it, it was one of those things where we're, I was looking at her thinking on, on the one level, you know, she's done a lot of damage on the other. She may have just gotten herself a job offer somewhere else. <laughs> um, it was, it was real, but I, I, I really, you know, on the one hand, you know, I, I looked at it, a lot of people just completely slammed her in the comments and mm. I, I felt really bad. I thought, wow, okay, this was daring to speak up, but, um, and it's funny cause I knew those guys when they started the company. Um, oh, and mm-hmm. and it was just really interesting to see that and and it you know to me like I said I, I I still find it shocking that it's 2016 and we're having to have this conversation. Yeah, I know, I know. I and believe me, <clears throat> I think after the election, where so many of us had a wake up call around, you know, my favorite saying, which is the the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Um, I have always believed that, like my definition of justice is greater equality. And for all, you know, opportunity for all to realize that so many, we were sort of blind to so many that, uh, you know, maybe justice is not um, being served for them, you know, and that was the, that was how I sort of my takeaway from the results. And for, for those of us who, who are having these conversations all day long, we have tremendous blind spots that we 
for whatever reason, we assumed it was 2016. We assumed all of this was sort of marching forward in the way that we define forward, right? And that's such a, that is a judgment call on our part. Um, and it's interesting to think about, so what if companies, uh, do companies have to take a position one way or the other? Is that inherently political for them to say that we believe in diversity and inclusion? You know, what do, what do if your management team is largely, you know, Republican, um, what is their, you know, what would they say and is there a, is there something they can say that um, that that and is it even maybe more important for them to share why diversity and inclusion is important for a thriving business? You know, mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of middle ground to be explored uh, by everyone around that. But um, but it's just it begs the question. Um, yeah, we're living in really interesting times. <laughs> I I mean, did you see the Grubhub CEO letter? That was mm-hmm. another one that I'll hit the news. Yeah. yeah, you have to check it out. He's he was he made a very strong one of the strongest statements I saw around here are the values of my company and here's what was was some of you may have voted in a way against the values that we prioritize here. Wow. And you know, I'm sort of sharing that that may may end up being a problem for you. And he got just crucified. <laughs> Um, yeah, he got crucif- crucified, and and I guess that was too political. I guess that was too personal. I don't know. I mean, I think we're all finding how do we talk about these things as a le- as a person and as a leader, and those are kind of two different pieces. Um, you know, I don't know if you remember the Mozilla CEO got you know sort of invited out the door by you know the the staff when it was discovered that he was giving money to anti gay causes on a personal level, mm-hmm. and then the sort of people said we don't resonate with you as a leader if you would do that on your personal time. And so he ended up leaving. And I remember reading it, um, you know, in Mozilla, you know, it has a really unique kind of open source structure. But the voice of the people really spoke in that case. Um, And I thought, wow, so is the personal now not off limits for leaders also? And what what does that mean? so rather than kind of agreeing or disagreeing, it was interesting to watch these these membranes that used to protect different parts of who we are kind of come down. And I think I'm sure we are marching towards that reality. We are already there, but I think we're it's going to be questioned more and more kind of who are you as a leader in all parts of who you are? And are you somebody I can get behind? Um, and I, I want to be your follower. Um, you know, what is that? What does that mean we need to do as leaders? And what does it mean if we we sort of have some political beliefs that are counter to what our workforce might want us to <laughs> want us to believe? Hmm. So I have one last question, and you know I'm sure somebody's going to shoot me for asking this because it's a question that comes up a lot. Um, I'm curious <laughs> what role higher education plays in all of this and oh, our yeah. education in its current um, form. Yeah. Wow. I I'm shocked that I'm not speaking at more business schools. Um, and in more schools, although I, I do have friends who specialize in in bringing the message of diversity to um, to colleges and universities, and that's all they do. And bless them, it's such it's really important work. I think if I could get my time with with emerging leaders that are that age, um, I don't know if this answers your question, but I would want them to understand what they are coming into, and I'd want to ignite in them the the um, the interest and the sense of responsibility of being who however they identify, I'd want to inwa- awaken them as allies, and I'd want to I'd want that to happen before they came into um, a system. I'd I'd want to you know, equip them with that understanding, and I hope they read my book. I hope the the book becomes kind of a textbook in HR classes and MBAs and you know, undergrad sort of human behavior and organizational behavior classes and, and even beyond because you have to be prepared that the business world is going to be behind where you are or where, you're, where you have been, how you've maybe been treated um, by your parents, by your institution. Um, and, and you're going to have to decide, you know, what, what do you want your legacy to be? And that's a, that's a, that is a crazy question to be asking somebody who's coming out of school but I don't know if it's ever too early to really say, you know, how, you know, if you feel called to be part of the change, and this is something you, you could be passionate about. You, know, you're very needed. 
you're very needed and here are the tools with which you you will need to affect change in your organization because here's what you're coming into. And honestly, if they knew, I don't know if they knew all the stats that I look at every day, you know, if they knew that there are, you know, single digit representation for people of color in tech. And if they knew as a, they were a woman, 22 year old woman, and they knew that they would be one of the only women in like 80% of the meetings that they're going to be going to, um, what would that, what kind of different behavior would that lead to? Um, and I, I, I'm a little disturbed because I feel millennials, especially, or younger people may not understand that this is on fire. <laughs> I mean, maybe they do understand after the election. I think that was, I think that maybe connected the dots for a lot of people because the thing I hear more often is, you know, what's the problem here? Is this is 2016? You know, I have the same opportunity that everybody else does. And so I'm often thinking, you know, how do I present the current state to, to them um, early enough that they can be aware and not opt out of it, but actually stay in it and witness it and role model in it and influence others? Like, how can I awaken that in them? And I think that that's what I most, most hope to see amongst these younger uh, generation of leaders, because if we just have this opting out, um, behavior and it just accelerates, um, you know, our institutions are going to fail. Hmm. So not to end on a low note, goodness. <laughs> I think it's a call to action. <laughs> well, this has been amazing. It really, really has. I mean, uh, I can, I can see now why Nikki, uh, you as a guest. I'm glad to know that she, she's got a good enough radar to know what will resonate. Oh, with she's audience. brilliant. Oh yeah. I can't say enough good things about Nikki. So yep. I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all our interviews at the unmistakable mm-hmm. creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Mm. Oh, it is your passion. And your ability to bring others along towards your uh, your ideas and your hopes and your your dreams and your ability to to generate a tribe. Um, and I think that that's um, people really are looking for places to belong. And some of us are are the tip of the spear, and others needs need people like us to uh, to gather and to convene. So. I think unmistakable un- unmistakableness um, comes from that the power of authenticity to gather to gather that tribe and to create change and however you want to define that. Uh, but knowing that there's there's so many so many people that that need you to lead um, in your own way in your own corner wherever you are and it doesn't mean that you're a leader in the traditional sense. I think we all are called to have that kind of voice. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, please check out my book. So it's brand new out last week, and we hit bestseller in a bunch of categories. So we're so excited. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's called Inclusion, colon, Diversity, the New Workplace, and the Will to Change. Uh, please pick up a copy. Give to your friends and family if you think that it will resonate and help them uh, understand what we're talking about when we talk about diversity and inclusion. Um, if you'd like me to come and speak for your organization, you can find my videos and such on jenniferbrownspeaks.com. And if you are interested in our consulting services around building your diversity strategy or strengthening your existing programs, you can go to jenniferbrownconsulting.com. And I'm also on Twitter, at Jennifer Brown. And uh, please join me there. I'm real active. I tweet a lot of stuff. Um, I like to try to keep my finger on the pulse. So uh, please actually share with me anything you'd like to share that you want me to get out to my community. And I'll be, I'll be happy to do that. And I'm always learning. Awesome. And for everybody Thank listening, you. we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. You can't be chasing your mind if you're not noticing that your mind is running off, and that is the goal. So if you're chasing your mind a lot, it means that you're noticing your mind a lot, which is great. You're getting a lot of reps in, just like you're at the gym. Mm-hmm. So don't look at it as a, a failure. Look at it as um, you know, as an indication that your awareness is growing. And I think that it's very important for people to see that. But as that happens, it's such it's such a an amazing magical thing because it's so mechanics of it are so simple and it's so subtle. 
But what begins to happen is you begin to be outside of your thinking process and you begin to direct it instead of just being a puppet of it. And it's a that's when you really start to gain self-power and you begin to do the things here that we're talking about where people say, well, I haven't experienced that. Well, that's because you're being run by your mind instead of the other way around and you're not even aware of it. Tom Sterner joins us to talk about the power of full engagement. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.